Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, we're going to start in verse 2 and we're going to go to verse 7. Philippians 4, 2 to 7 is where we'll be this morning. What are you looking for in a church? You could ask that question to a hundred people and you'd get a hundred different answers. Some would say to you that what they're looking for in a church is that they want the music to be fantastic. And what they mean by that differs depending on which person you're talking to. Some say they want the music to be fantastic, meaning they want you to knock their socks off and blow their hair back. Others want you to stick to the hits. Play just the classics, all right, like It Is Well. Or Christmas music. I know y'all didn't expect to sing Christmas music this morning. (laughs) Keep you on your toes. For others, it's the preaching. And depending on who you talk to, they mean different things when when they say the preaching. Some want it three points in a poem, keep it short, and keep it sweet. Others want the bone to be clean at the end. I want you to drain that thing of all the dregs. I want you to strip the meat off the bone. I want you to throw all the Greek words at me. The more, the better. Give me all the knowledge. There are hundreds of other things that might go into consideration when you're looking for a church. Small groups. Sunday school. Church structure. Building size and style. Aesthetics. Temperature of the room. If we give Shannon control of the thermostat, I will die, all right? I will turn into beef jerky right here in front of you. Just know that. The heater will be on in August. (laughs) People that are nice, right? Or that yell at you while you're preaching. (laughs) All these things go into things that we might say we're looking for when we're finding a church. And, and frequently what we find is that churches get wind of this. People are looking for these kinds of things, and so they, they go to great lengths to cater what they're doing to meet the need that is in the congregation. So-and-so is looking for that kind of church. Oh, what's-his-face is looking for this kind of church. And they start to market themselves to the people to tell them that we have exactly what you need We're exactly the kind of church that you're looking for. It's going to be just the way you like it here. But if Jesus were visiting from church to church, what would He be looking for? What would be on Jesus' mind if He sat in a congregation? What are the things that He's looking for in His churches? In our passage this morning, Paul is exhorting the Philippians. He's going to continue to be preaching to the the Philippians, encouraging them in one way or another. But in this case, he's been encouraging them towards Christ-centeredness, this entire book. And he's not going to stop. But now, his challenges are now taken to the broader group. And he's specifically calling out the church body with this command. 
There's no getting around this one. Everything that's within this is an entire church's effort. With that in mind, let's read our passage, Philippians 4, 2-7. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, we've read your word, we've prayed your word, we've sung your word, we've been encouraged by your word. We pray now that we will be exhorted by your word through preaching of your word. We pray that in everything, your word would have preeminence in our church because in it we find the truth about who you are. And I pray that through your word and through the teaching and preaching of your word, our hearts would be encouraged by it to know more of you. And as we grow to know more of you, we would become more like you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting to the end of the book of Philippians, we've got just a few weeks left, and Paul is going to start wrapping up his letter with some concluding thoughts, and you'll find often in uh, Paul's letters that he gets to the very end, and we get some of these uh, statements that are sort of one-off, and that might be sort of wrapping up some final concluding thoughts or some things that he wants to take care of. Like when you get to the end of 2 Timothy, as we found out in building blocks this morning, he tells Timothy not to forget his parchments and his books and his cloak for the winter when he comes to him. But other times he begins this little shotgun approach where he just sort of lists off things that they need to do, some final exhortations that wrap up what he has been talking about before. And one is not necessarily connected to the one that came before it. It's just a seemingly random assortment of final exhortations that he gives. Now throughout the letter to the Philippians, he's been urging them towards Christ-centeredness. He's been telling them time and time again he wants them to grow in the love of Christ. He wants them to have the maturity of Christ. He wants them to live as Christ, as he himself is living. He wants them to have the mind of Christ, which he says is a mind of humility. He wants them to have that mind amongst them, a, a mind of humility. He wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Over and over and over again, he has been encouraging them to put Christ in the center of everything that they do. At the heart of it, the faith that they have in Christ is at the center. And the more that they consider that, the more they will realize how much of their life actually connects to a life of faith. Everything from the way they spend their time, the way they spend their money, the things that they love, the things that they enjoy, all of them have connection back to Christ who is calling them to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the more they do that, the more the carnal things of this world begin to be 
pushed to the fringes, the less weight they actually hold. Yet this whole time, as we've been reading the book, nearly everything that he said and, and most of the sermons that I've preached have been commands that we could take personally. You on your couch, as you're opening your Bible and you're reading Philippians, you're taking this personally. You're applying it to your personal life. And, and that's not wrong. This is a letter that we're supposed to apply to us personally. But now here, as we get to the end of this letter, Paul is calling the whole church to action. There's a situation involving two people, and he's calling everyone to action, and he's applying much of what he's already been saying to now the church at Philippi to put it into action. There are things that he personally knows are going on inside the congregation, and, and he's going to exhort as a whole church body, you got to get on this. As you live your lives in Christ, now you've got to apply it to this situation. Keeping with the theme of the Christ-centered life, Paul is here applying Christ-centeredness to the church. What does it actually mean to be a Christ-centered congregation? And there are two important elements that he points out to them that I want us to look at what it means to be a Christ-centered church. And First, he says, a Christ-centered church is a peacemaking church. A Christ-centered church is a peacemaking church. There are two ladies that Paul begins by calling out on the carpet. Now, we don't know anything about these ladies. We don't know who they are. We don't, know any, we don't have any other mention of them in the Bible. We've never heard of them before. And every time there's a mystery like this in the Scriptures... Somebody out there wants to solve the mystery, which is good. That's how we figure things out. But there's millions of theories on who these women are, but let me just cut to the quick of it. We don't know. All right? They're members of the congregation at Philippi, and that's all that we know about that. If there was anything more that we needed to know, the Lord would have given us a bio on these ladies, and He didn't. The important part is that these two ladies are called out in the letter. A letter written to the church as a whole. And there's only one reason why Paul can address a spat without giving the background on it or informing anyone about what's going on. And that's because everybody knows. Alright? Everybody already knows. This is an issue that he doesn't have to go into detail explaining. As soon as he mentions the two ladies, everybody know what's happening with them. Everyone in the congregation knows what the spat is about, and ain't nobody saying nothing. Well, that's not entirely true. Nobody's saying nothing to these two women. But plenty of people are talking about it. The gossip has spread, you want to know how far? To Paul in prison. Right? Nobody's dealing with the situation, but it has spread so quickly that Paul, who is in a prison cell, knows what's happening. And he's wanting them to agree. But what's interesting is what he encourages them towards. Not on the particulars, but on the principles. 
Not agreeing on the particulars, but on the principles. This is what his exhortation is really about. He doesn't just want them to agree. He doesn't even want them, as is so common in our world, to just agree to disagree. That's not what he wants them to do either. He says he wants them to agree in the Lord. Literally, what it says is, be of the same mind. Agree in the Lord, that is, be of the same mind. Does this sound familiar? That he said that before in this book, in the book of Philippians. Go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 2. He says there, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Remember, he's encouraged everybody in the church to be this way. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Just as he told them to be of one mind together, he's now applying that to the body to put it into action, specifically these two ladies. Put what I've already told you to work. Be of the same mind. Now again, he doesn't mention what their disagreement was about. And he doesn't even tell Euodia, you need to see it like Syntyche has, has said. Or Syntyche, you need to see it Euodia's way. He wants them to agree in the Lord. They may never get down to the particulars and agree on every part of the spat. But that's not really the point, is it? He wants them to agree on the faith that is mutual between them and celebrate about that. There's always a great difficulty in the church when there's disagreement. And it can be Disagreement that's important. Theological disagreements sometimes. We've mentioned in here a number of times. Some people on the side of Calvinism. Some people on the side of Arminianism. Some people have this view of the end times. Some people have that view of the end times. They, they can be very good and beneficial conversations and important theological debates from time to time. And there can be disagreement within the body. But let's assume the disagreement is between two people who are both Christians. Nothing heretical going on here, but still very serious disagreements. It could be something as serious as that. Or it could be something as silly as the temperature of the air. <clears throat> I had that written down. I, I wasn't, that wasn't ad-libbed, so... Divine. I... I <laughs> It could be something as silly as the temperature of the air, the color of the carpet. We've all heard stories about that. The paint color on the walls. And when we find these kinds of disagreements, there's frequently one of two outcomes. Either someone gets mad and leaves, or one of them gets tired of fighting and just agrees to disagree. <laughs> Shannon with the air. But you understand, the unity of the church isn't about the particulars. If it were, every church would be a church of one. Because you find the people around you that agree, okay, well, this guy's a just like me, he sees the end times the same way. And then 
You narrow the circle down to where it's just you and several others that see it the same way, and then all of a sudden you find, oh wait, this is not quite the exact same. And so you whittle him out. And then eventually you whittle some others out who are not quite the same. And eventually you're left with a circle that's just got you in it. Or even your husband or wife doesn't want anything to do with you. It's not about the particulars. The unity that's to be had in the church is built on Jesus. It's built on the mutual faith that we have in Christ. It's built on the principal foundation, the bedrock of our faith, which is the resurrected Son of God. The agreement that we have together is Christ. The rest of our disagreements are subsumed into an agreement on Christ. He not only supersedes our disagreements, but what He actually does is changes the merits of the disagreements. He changes how much they weigh. He changes what they're actually worth. He changes the amount of attention that's actually paid to them. The disagreements in Christ are put into perspective. Members of the body of Christ are to agree on the principles of our mutual faith in Jesus Christ. But then the question is, how do I keep that perspective? How do I keep that perspective in mind? Well, that's exactly where Paul goes in verse 3. Look at what he says. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what Paul is doing here. First, he engages the body to come along and help. The entire church body is being put on notice. You need to come along and help. And he addresses one in particular he calls true companion. He might be calling out just in general, the body is filled with people who are true companions. He might be talking about Timothy, whom we've already seen earlier in the letter he's sending to the church at Philippi. He might be talking about Epaphroditus, who we know is carrying the letter back to Philippi. Or he might be talking about someone whose name translates into the words true companion, which is my view that I hold on this. The word syzygous translates to true companion. And it's difficult to know from a first century where names can often mean something whether we should translate this as a proper name or whether we should leave this as true companion. It's difficult sometimes to know, but the point is we've got it here. You can pick any one of those views and it doesn't really matter. The point is Paul is calling this out in the letter to the church at Philippi because the body is to be intimately involved in the repair of the relationship. The church body as a whole is invited to get into the personal affairs of these two ladies. But here's how the matter is put to rest. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. What is Paul calling to there? This faith I know they have because they've been standing next to me on the front lines of ministry. I know who they are. And then he says at the end of that, along with the fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. What an incredible statement to make about somebody with assurance. I know Clement 
many of my fellow workers, and these two ladies who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, their names are written in the book of life. Now remember that phrase, labored side by side? Look, look back at, at Philippians 1, verse 27, just probably a page maybe in your Bible. He says here, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, here it is, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That phrase there, striving side by side, is one word. And it's the same word that he uses here, labored side by side. Back when I preached that message on Philippians 1, 27, in a sermon entitled Together for the Gospel, in it I said, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, in other words, that's a Christ-centered life, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life together as a body that promotes the gospel above all else. And there's no better way to demonstrate that your life is Christ-centered than to not merely agree to disagree, not merely bury the hatchet and begrudgingly walk away from the confrontation and just move on and we'll just, we'll just agree, we're never going to discuss this. That's not what he's talking about. It's instead celebrating what we do have. That whether we disagree on this thing or whether we disagree on something else down the road, we're not going to see eye to eye on something. What we celebrate together is our names are written in the book of life. That's what Paul is calling them to celebrate. Your names are written in the book of life. Live this life with an eternal perspective. That person that I'm arguing with, that person that I have a spat with, that person is forgiven by the Lord and my brother or sister in Christ, and they're going to be with me forever. So you better get used to it. I think this is pivotal to making peace between two members of a church body. If you struggle to love someone else, you really need to stop and just think about what Paul is purposefully bringing to your attention here. You need to think instead, wait a second, they believe same gospel I believe. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel. And that could be even as seemingly little as standing next to me in church singing the hymns of faith that we sing and listening to the sermon and, and writing it down and applying it to their life and giving themselves to the Word. They've encouraged me with their prayers They've been encouraged by my prayers. By all accounts, this person is going to be with me for all of eternity. That means that they're forgiven by the Lord. That means that He has written their name in His eternal book of names of those for whom He died and He will dwell with them for eternity. 
That is how the Lord views them. So the repair of the relationship is not something that I do merely out of duty or out of obligation. It's not done begrudgingly. It's done in joy instead because of what the Lord has done here for both of you. He has saved you and built you on the foundation of Christ. So the restoration of a relationship works best first if when both parties decide to stop looking at the other person's sin and instead look at their own sin. It's the hardest thing to do. is to stop looking at the sin of the person who has offended you and start looking at your own sin. It might be a husband and wife. It might be a friend and a friend. It might be a parent-child relationship. Whatever the relationship is, until you begin to see your own sin in the matter, it's unlikely that you're ever going to be able to build an agreement in the Lord because as of this moment, you don't find yourself much in need of Christ's sacrifice. Which is a dangerous place to be in, let me tell you. When you see yourself as the righteous one, instead of seeing Christ as the righteous one, it's unlikely that you're ever going to repair that relationship on the foundation of Christ. How could you? You stand in a place where right now, because of your own self-righteousness, you don't need Jesus. But at the moment where you begin to see that you're a sinner too, you're also in need of His forgiveness, is the moment where extending grace and mercy to others becomes a little easier to do. (laughs) Because you start to realize, well, then they probably need that also. But second, reconciliation works best in the context of a local church body where other members whose names are also in the book of life can come beside the individuals and restore the relationship by helping to remind them of the mutual faith that they have in Christ. What's implicit there is that the members of the church body have a right to step on your toes. That's what comes with church membership, is I'm giving them the right to interfere in all my business, to know all of the nitty-gritty of my life. The Christ-centered church is a church of peacemakers, where each member is keeping a firm grip on the reality that we are bought by the blood of Christ, and our names are in the Lamb's book of life. We're brothers and sisters for eternity, and I guarantee you, mark it down, every single one of us who are either in the midst of a spat, who have been in the midst of a spat, who will be in the midst of a spat, or who know people who are in a spat, are going to find one day when Christ returns the silliness of all of our spats. One look at Jesus, and I have a feeling we're going to immediately go, What was I so worried about? What a foolish person I've been. Christ-centered church makes peace on the basis of Christ. Second, a Christ-centered church exudes the fruit of the Spirit. Christ-centered church exudes the fruit of the Spirit. As I said, it's, it's pretty normal when you get to the end of Paul's letters for him to start just giving commands like rapid fire, verse after verse after verse after verse. 
The majority of times the, the commands come from things that he's already said in his letter up to this point. And starting in verse 4, it's no different. He just starts kind of like a machine gun, just blasting them with different exhortations. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. This is what he reminds them of back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. You can look back there. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So like a good Baptist preacher, Paul says, finally, when he's only halfway through, all right, that's where we get it, he says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And now he says, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Joy and rejoicing is frequently found throughout the New Testament to be indicative of what it means to be a believer in Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus. Your life is to be marked by joy and rejoicing. Again, not aimlessly, but your rejoicing is in the Lord. Even their joy is grounded in what He has done for them, in both death, burial, and resurrection, and also His coming again. But Jesus' body is meant to be marked by rejoicing. Next, what does He exhort them to? Reasonableness. Or, might be better translated, gentleness. There are commands. These are the commands that He's, he's giving to them at the close of the letter, but it's not like they're disconnected from everything that he said up until now. He's just told them to get over the spat that is between them and the argument that's between them and all of the gossip and stuff that's gone on out after that. Obviously, there's been some of that. He's told them not only to just get over that, but now he comes back to an exhortation to be known instead by their gentleness. Make your gentleness known to everyone. I hope that by now, people will realize that I am particular about doctrine. I think it's fundamental to our life as a church, and I do believe that our doctrine informs everything that we do. Every ounce of our worship service should be informed by our doctrine. And it's important to the church body. It's important that a church maintains faithful doctrine. And Paul always includes that in his letters that we maintain faithful doctrine. He's done so in Philippians and he does in every other book. And if someone teaches a gospel other than the one he teaches, he tells them, even if I were to bring to you a gospel other than the one that I preached to you originally, then just don't listen to me. Right? So his particularities on doctrine are clear. But along with strict adherence to the gospel and to the doctrine of the scriptures, it's our gentleness that should be made known to everyone. In our evangelism, do the people of the world hear our concern for their souls in gentleness? Or do they hear smug elitism? In our prayers, do our brothers and sisters hear our gentle concern for others? Our true, genuine concern for others, or do they hear gossip? In our disagreement with others, can we present their argument in a way they would agree with? Or do we only present the straw man argument to get other people on our side? We might debate about different forms of doctrine, but are we known by our gentleness? Are we trying to be reasonable and see it from their perspective? Maybe you're known for 
your strict adherence to doctrine. Maybe you have all of your theological ducks in a row down to the minutia of Scripture. Maybe you've got verses on the tip of your tongue that you could rattle off faster than anyone. Maybe you can win the debates, but in the process are you known by your gentleness. Believe me when I say I'm not pointing fingers here. I understand how difficult it is, as we talked about last week, it's a tightrope that we're walking and that we're commanded to walk and that the Lord empowers us to walk. The tightrope on one side is be gentle and on the other side, don't be mushy. That's a difficult balance to strike. But are we known by more than just the things that we know? Are we known by our gentleness? Finally, in contrast to to letting gentleness be made known to everyone, he says, let your requests be made known to God so that you wouldn't be anxious. He says, every request, every supplication, every prayer, all coupled with thanksgiving, make it known to God. Why? So you can alleviate all your anxiety. We're people who are prone to anxiety. But you understand the good news is that anxiety is not inherently bad. What? Do not be anxious, he says. Anxiety is not inherently bad. It's a trigger to pray. It's a built-in trigger for prayer. Are there worries? Are there concerns that you have? It's a built-in trigger for prayer. The result of our anxiety should be that we become people of peace. Why? Because we pray and that brings about peace. It comes with a promise. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's told the Philippians before that he's sending Timothy to them because Timothy would be genuinely concerned about their well-being. It's the same word. As as our word for anxiety. It's the same word. That Timothy will be genuinely concerned. And this he commends. But he says to them, don't be anxious. Which tells us something. It tells us that he's warning specifically about a kind of concern that could cause you to be worried about future events, things that haven't happened yet, or things that are beyond your control. It's a kind of concern that's a lot more like fretting. It turns into prayerlessness, that kind of anxiety. That's what he tells you not to to do. But all of it is supposed to be a trigger for you to pray and the ultimate peace of God, which is better than anything you could possibly ever imagine, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in reality, Christians should be the most peaceful people on the planet. But I have a feeling that what happens more often than not is our peace is dictated by the television and the internet rather than our prayer. We whip ourselves up into a frenzy about things that we cannot control. We have no power. In fact, God has not put that in your garden. Everybody's got a garden. Every Christian has a garden, and it's got fences. It's got big fences. Sometimes we peer over the fence, and we look into the other gardens over there and go, man, look at the problems in that garden. Are my neighbor's weeds going to become my weeds tomorrow? 
Maybe. So we just sit there on the fence and just fret. That's not what he's called us to do. All of it comes from not looking at the garden that he's given you. He's put this in front of you. And he intends for you to work it. And so Christians should be the most peaceful people out there. Why? Because all of the anxiety that is natural to fallen man now becomes a trigger for us to pray. And in our prayers, we release the things that we have absolutely no control over. We release the things that we're worried about that haven't even happened yet. And instead, set our minds on the things that God has put us here to take control of and accomplish. But you understand, he's not promising here at the end of this verse that he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He's not promising that all of your anxiety just disappears, just poof, it goes by the wayside. There it is. Yeah, well, now you're not anxious. Well, did you not pray? Well, why are you still anxious? That's not what he's saying. In fact, what may happen is that your anxiety may lead to you becoming a prayer warrior because you just struggle with anxiety so much. What he's promising you is that in your praying over your anxious feelings, that's one way that God has of keeping you in the faith. He's guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He's keeping you in Christ through your prayers of anxiety. He's guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So there's three commands here that Paul gives to us in this, pa- in this part of the passage. First, rejoice or be joyful. Second, be gentle. Third, do not be anxious, or if we put it in the positive, be at peace. Now, significantly, all three of these are the fruit that the Spirit produces in His people. Remember Galatians 5, 22-23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So his exhortation to these women in the first part to agree and the church around them to be peacemakers in helping these women. And now his exhortation to be filled with joy and with gentleness and peace is really one big encouragement for the church to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit toward one another. Are there those in the body who are at odds? Then be a church of peacemakers. Are some of you grumpy? Rejoice. Are some of you anxious? Pray and be at peace. Are you also tempted to be at odds with one another? Are you known for your sour personality? Be known for gentleness. But in the middle of all of this, there's this little phrase that I didn't read. That maybe you might have just flown under your radar. It happens right at the end of verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. And he just, he just throws it in there, almost like it has nothing to do with anything else. Just kind of drops that little nugget in there and just keeps walking. The Lord is at hand. And I think this phrase is meant by Paul to put everything in perspective for the Philippians. He's reminding them that the return of Jesus is imminent. Meaning, it could happen at any moment. Paul might have been convinced that it was going to happen in his lifetime, as almost every Christian has since Paul left. 
But his point is, there won't be any warning. You won't have time to put your affairs in order. You won't have a a chance to settle your grumpiness. You won't have time to put on a brave face. The Lord's return is imminent. It will be sudden. And immediately your frustration with your fellow brothers and sisters will be exposed as futile. Your anxiety as asinine. Your sourness as silliness. So, put it away. Because it could happen at any moment. So it forces us to ask, what kind of church is Jesus looking for? When his return happens, what is he wanting to see? Believe it or not, he's not looking for a church that has a sharp-looking building or has a smoking band or makes it look like they have everything put together and all of the rest of the things that we think are important. He's looking for a peacemaking church that exudes the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's looking for. Whether it's three or 30, or 3,000? Is the church exuding the fruit of the Spirit, and are they a peacemaking church? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ faced the wrath of God, and He did it for your frustration, and for your grumpiness, and for your sourness, and for your anxiety, and for your lack of faith. And He did it all so that you might be, first of all, reconciled to God because all of those things are not how God created you. He didn't create you to be sour. He didn't create you to be grumpy. He didn't create you to be at spats and at odds with one another. He didn't create you for that purpose. And all of them are evidence of the fact that we're fallen and that we deserve an eternity in hell. But Christ died so that He could forgive you of all of those sins. But not only so that He could forgive you, but that those sins in your life might be robbed of their power, of their eternal power. That because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you don't have to face an eternity in hell. That yes, the books will be opened at the end. Yes, all your deeds will be exposed, every careless word. But no, final judgment is whether or not your name is written in the book of life. That's what it's about. It's an eternal perspective. Now as the body of Christ, we're called to rejoice that He has purchased us with His blood and He has included us in the family of God. And so if you're born of God and you truly have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, then it should lead us and point us towards gentleness, toward love, toward patience with our brothers and sisters. It should lead us towards submission to our brothers and sisters when they interfere in our business. They step on our toes. It should lead us to heed correction from the Word as it's taught. It should lead us to submit ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God in the church and do what the Word is telling us to do. But mark it down. If you're not in Christ, be warned. His return is imminent. The Lord is at hand. We don't know when that will be. But you won't have time to put your affairs in order. 
You won't have time at that point to make everything right. It will come like a thief in the night. Sure and swift. So if you find yourself right now on the outside looking in, come to Christ. Don't wait. And you might ask, well, how do I do that? Confess your sin to Him. Peter's preaching his first sermon in Acts. And the people respond. It says they were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. Repent of your sin. Follow Christ. It's as simple as a prayer of confession. Lord, I have sinned greatly. And my sin is an offense to you. Forgive me. Welcome me into your kingdom. Follow Christ for the rest of your life. It's a life of repentance of sin. It's a life of confession. But it's a life of joy in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have taught us through your word. pray that we wouldn't resist your call to repentance. That where there is sin in our life, maybe it's a spat with somebody else, or maybe it's just sins of unbelief, where we've lived our life in the ignorance of you. I pray that you would change our hearts. Lead us into lives of godliness, that we might pursue Christ at all costs. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.